Right. Well, um, there are certain days that have meaning or have significance. Um, this is true, like, in our individual lives or also collectively or corporately. Like, in your life, you can probably think of, like, certain dates. It's like, this, this date on the calendar, it means a lot to me because I'm celebrating something or remembering something or it marked me in a particular way. Uh, we have that uh, kind of corporately as uh, groups of people or as nations as well. And sometimes there, there will be a day that has multiple layers of significance or uh, multiple things happen on the same day, and it kind of expands as time goes along. And uh, the, the first example I thought of was, uh, like, in our context uh, for a national holiday like Veterans Day. We, we remember, we celebrate um, people who have served and uh, but that, that has multiple layers of meaning, that Veterans Day is on November 11th, because first something else happened on November 11th, it was Armistice Day, Armistice, I can't say that, day when World War I ended on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour, World War I ended in 1918, and so there's that, and then there's Veterans Day, so it's these, the, the significance coming together on the same day. Uh, we're going to look at something today that has significance. Today is a significant day in the life of the church. And the reason today is a significant day in the life of the church is because it was a significant day in something that happened in the life of Jesus. Uh, and it was a significant day in something that happened in the life of Jesus because it was significant into what was going on on Israel, the nation of Israel's calendar. And so today, on like the church calendar, not that we, we don't really follow like an official church calendar, um, we're not like a liturgical church, but we kind of follow along loosely. Today's what's known as, known as Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday where we reflect and we celebrate uh, what's known as Jesus' triumphal entry uh, into the city of Jerusalem. And so kind of kicks off Holy Week where uh, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. On Friday, he'll be crucified. On Sunday, he'll raise from the dead. But Palm Sunday is Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time during his life here on earth. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to continue in the Gospel of John that we've been in, but we're going to skip around a little bit. Uh, we're jumping ahead to John 12. We should be going into John 11 today. Uh, we'll come back to John 11. But John 12 has John's account of the triumphal entry. So we're going to look at that. Um, but to kind of set the, the scene for what we're about to look at and what's going on, Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem, and it's, it's during uh, the Passover season. Uh, and so Passover is one of these festivals, one of these feasts that the Jewish people celebrate every single year. And it's a pilgrimage feast where just thousands upon thousands of people go to the city of Jerusalem. And so the population swells like crazy. Um, and it was something that remembered like the foundational story in Israel's history. Like the thing was like, this is who we are as a people. This is what, who our God is. This is what, what our lives orient around. Like it was their foundational story was this moment in what we call the Old Testament, but it's just the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, where God rescued them out of slavery. A super famous story where Israel is in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and then there's, he, God raises up this leader named Moses, and it's the whole, let my people go, he's telling Pharaoh, uh, and then the 10 plagues, and then finally the final plague comes, and it's the death of the firstborn. That all, the firstborn of all the livestock, of all the families, is going to die. But the, the Israelite people are told to, okay, you're gonna take a lamb, and this is weird, and it's ancient context, and we can't get into it today, but take a lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and that will mark you as, like, safe, so when the angel of death comes through, he passes over your home. And so this is the celebration of Passover. This is what is taking place, or about to take place, about to be celebrated as Jesus moves into the city. So it's on everyone's mind. There's people everywhere. That's where we pick things up. John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. John tells us that it's the next day, uh, and a large crowd had come to the festival, that's the festival of Passover, um, and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so right away, there, there's something we need to know about the timing of this. It's the next day, and that's actually significant. 
that John 12 starts with a different account. And at the beginning of John 12, it says it was six days before Passover. Now, I'm not the greatest at math, but I can do that. If it was six days before Passover, and now it's the next day, how many days before Passover is it? Okay, well, some of you paid attention to math class. I'm like, six minus one, five. Yeah, good job. I, you get a sticker. I don't have any stickers. But yeah, it's five days before, uh, before Passover, right? Uh, which puts it on, on the, and this is going to be important later on down the line, okay? It is the 10th day of the month of Nisan. Nisan, not Nisan like the cards, one less S, okay, I think. Um, the 10th of Nisan is the date uh, that the triumphal entry happens. That's the day that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Now, 1,500 years roughly before that is when Passover is first instituted. And there was something significant, some significant instruction that was given to the Jewish people about the 10th day of Nisan. And so we find that in Exodus 23. Exodus 23 says this. This is God speaking. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, the, the, the Israelite people are supposed to go and they, they go and select the lamb that's going to be the Passover lamb. They find the best lamb. It's supposed to be without spot. It's supposed to be without blemish. And they pick their lamb, one for each household. So, uh, you know, extended family living under the same roof. They could all share a lamb. And they take that lamb and they bring it into their home for like the next uh, few days, four or five days, right? And, and, and then on the 14th day at twilight is when the Passover lamb is actually killed. Now, the Jewish days work a little different than our days do. We think, you know, the next day starts at, you know, 12.01 a.m. or kind of commonly like when sun comes up the next morning. But to the Jewish people, uh, the day starts at sundown. As soon as it's dark, that day is over. The next day begins uh, with the night. And so literally on the, like, on the last, the waning moments of the 14th day is when you kill this Passover lamb. And it's about to be the 15th day. And that's what is talked about later on. On that same night, so it's the same night, but it's now a different day. It's confusing, right? You're like, oh, just, our minds don't work like that. It's the same night, just a little bit later, but it's a different day. It's now the 15th of Nisan. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And, and listen to this. It will become important in a little bit. I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. And so on the 15th of Nisan, God is going to bring judgment upon Egypt for its evil. For the 400 years of slavery and oppression and just the evils that they have unleashed on the world, the ancient world was a, a brutal, awful, conquer, violence kind of place. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on Egypt because of their sin and their evil. But notice what he says. It's not just like on people. It's not just people doing bad things, but there's the, the gods of Egypt. That underneath of Egypt's evil, there is like supernatural, spiritual evil that is happening. There is something animating them and moving them in that direction. And God says, just on the 15th, I'm going to bring judgment. And that would be the moment where, you know, Egypt is judged and Israel then is freed from their slavery. This is what's playing in the background as Jesus enters into the city. That on the 10th day, they pick the lambs because on the night of the 14th, they're going to slaughter the lambs because on the 15th, they're going to celebrate God's judgment on evil and their deliverance from slavery. And Jesus comes walking in to the city on the 10th of Nisan. On the day when the lambs are being brought in, 
And so uh, the Jewish historian Josephus says at one particular Passover, uh, around the time of Jesus, he lived during a similar time, that 260,000 lambs were slaughtered for Passover. 260,000. Now, some people say Josephus may be exaggerating there, even if he's doubling that. Even if he's like 10Xing that, that is still a ton of lambs. And so you picture the scene as Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem, there are lambs everywhere. People are bringing them into the city. They're bringing them into homes. And everywhere you look, there's just lambs and you just hear the bleating of sheep. And in, in, in the midst of that, here comes Jesus. And if we're kind of paying attention, if we're, if we're good readers of, of scripture, there should be some bells going off in our head right now from all the way at the beginning of the Gospel of John. I'll refresh us because it was like two years ago that we went through it, sorry. But all the way at the beginning of the Gospel of John, the, the, Jesus' first public appearance in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, as soon as he sees him, cries out and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here comes Jesus into the city of Jerusalem among all of the Passover lambs, marching in to be the final Passover lamb, the lamb that would take away the sin of the world. He's coming to accomplish what he set out to accomplish. That's not necessarily how the people see him at first, though. They have a different idea in mind. An idea that's kind of equally as true in terms of what they expected their Messiah to be, but it wasn't what Jesus was getting at in this moment. So Jesus comes into the, the city, picking back up in John's gospel. They took palm branches and went out to, um, to meet him, and they kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The King. Here comes our King. Here comes our king, and they're shouting, and they're celebrating, and they're waving these palm branches. And uh, this was a symbol that, that um, originated uh, during the time of the Maccabean Revolt that we talked about uh, last week briefly, uh, where they, they took their, their, their kingdom and their, their temple back, and they rededicated the temple. And so palm branches become a thing then. And so the waving of palm branches is this, like, nationalistic, patriotic fervor, this, this, this hope of, like, here comes a messianic liberator who's going to save us. In fact, they start shouting Hosanna, which literally means save now. Or give us salvation now. And so Jesus is coming in, and they've heard some things that he's done, and so they're all riled up. It's Passover time. The crowds are huge, and they're just crying out, save us, save us, save us. Our king is here. Come save us. Save us, Jesus of Nazareth. And there's it's people going nuts, and they're expecting him to be this king, this liberator. In fact, Psalm 118 is what they're quoting here, and it becomes known as this messianic psalm, this hope of their, their liberator coming. But Jesus does something that's a little counterintuitive. Like this, is, this is the picture of a Passover, that, or, the, or not Passover, excuse me, the triumphal entry, entry that, that I usually have. Um, it's, it's Hosanna, it's palm branches. And maybe if you grew up in a church or certain like, church traditions, you'll remember this on Palm Sunday, like people like waving palm branches around, right? Like there's always fake palm branches we had at my church. And I was like, Hosanna, Hosanna. It just, it just seemed very kind of like, um, how can I say, corny, <laughs> if we will. And we miss out on the significance of what ha what's happening. These aren't just people prancing. These aren't people like putting on a show. They are crying out, save us right now. And Jesus is gonna, is gonna flip their idea of salvation on its head. John tells us that Jesus finds a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And this is a quote from the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9. Jesus gets on the donkey because Zechariah has said, Don't, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. That's just a, another a term for the city of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. Here it is again. Here comes your king. Your king is coming. And he's sitting on a donkey's colt. 
And so the people are shouting, save us, save us, deliver us right now. Come be our king. We want you to save us. We want you to throw off the oppression of the Romans. We want to have our nation back. Come and be our king. Set up your rule here on earth. And yet Jesus comes on a donkey. In that context, in that world, when a king or a ruler or a general would come into a city or a region, there was different ways that they could come. If they came marching with soldiers or came riding on a war horse, it was a symbol that this king, that this general, this ruler was coming to make war, was coming to conquer. But if a king or a ruler came riding on a donkey, it was a sign that this king was here to bring peace. People are shouting out for Jesus to save them, and he comes with this message of, I'm actually coming to bring you peace. I'm coming to bring you peace. John gives us this little aside. It says his disciples, of which John, who's writing this, is one of them. So he could say, we, you know, we did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified after his death and resurrection, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. And so as the disciples are with Jesus kind of going into the city, they're just like, well, what's happening? I don't know, but it seems cool. Like they have no idea what's going on. That oftentimes throughout the life of, of Jesus, the disciples are like, I don't know what that meant. Cool, whatever. But it's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus they go, oh, now it makes sense. Now looking back, like now that I have this lens, now that I have this filter of, of the cross and of the resurrection, now it makes sense. So John lets us know, he's like, yeah, as this was going on, we were clueless, but looking back, we knew exactly what he was doing. Verse 17 says, meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. And this is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. And so John 11, that we skipped, we'll come back to, records this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is in the tomb for four days, and Jesus is like, hey, buddy, why don't you come on out here? And he does, and there's people around, and they're like, are you kidding me? And it's this massive miracle, and there's a ton of people that witness it. And so they're really excited about this, and they're like, this is the guy we've been waiting for. And so they actually travel with Jesus. They, they follow him to Jerusalem, and they start telling everyone, as you would if you just saw someone be raised from the dead. And so this is why this crowd begins to swell. This is why there's this excitement around Jesus coming into the city. Like, he raised the guy from the dead. We were there. We saw it. This is our Messiah. This is our liberator. Come and save us, Jesus. And it's interesting, like, the the change in people's opinion of Jesus over the course of just a few short days. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus comes into the city just riding high. The crowds love him. This is like the high point of Jesus' ministry. But in just a few days, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. We want, we've got nothing to do with him. And there's a group of people that are very much kind of driving that shift in the view of Jesus, and it's the religious leaders. They've been kind of opposed to Jesus throughout his life and his ministry, and they chime in next. As these crowds are shouting, Hosanna, the Pharisees, they say to one another, you see, we've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they are, they are constantly trying to find ways to, to, to do away with Jesus, to discredit Jesus. Like all the crowds and the common people, they love Jesus, and they're like, we have to stop this. And so they try getting him tripped up in his teaching, and that doesn't work. They, they, they try to claim he's breaking the Sabbath and doing and breaking God's law, and that doesn't work. And so they're like, look, we've, it's been three years of this guy, and we've accomplished nothing. More people love him than ever before. And they say, look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, for them, this is, this is hyperbole. Um, it's not literally the whole world, but it's just, I mean, there's these, crowd, these massive crowds of people, and it would seem like everybody is going after Jesus. And they say it in, in such a way that 
they're obviously mad about it. They don't like it. They think it's a bad thing. But I, I, I love statements like this, especially when they're made by like the enemies of Jesus in the gospel. There's, there's several times when they'll say something like this, and, and they'll say something against Jesus or that's meant to be taken as a negative thing. But like, it, it, it actually proves to be true, and it proves to be a beautiful thing. They're like, oh, the whole world is going after this Jesus. And history has kind of bared out over the last 2,000 years that actually, yeah, the whole world has gone after Jesus. And so they're like, this is terrible. we got to put an end to this because the whole world has gone after him. But even what they do doesn't stop the whole world from going after him. And not literally the whole world, not every single person on the planet has been like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. But around the globe, the, the Christian faith is, is, the only, is, is the only worldwide religion it's the only worldwide faith tradition in the sense that, that most faith traditions, you can look at like a map uh, of, of like where a faith or a religion starts and that, that geographic location, and for the most part, they stay in that geographic location. There's, there's some disbursement, but usually it's just in that same spot. Christianity is different. That, that it has gone around the globe to all kinds of, of different places and different people. In fact, like there, there's, there's a graphic that, that I want to show you. It's just crazy. If you're a visual learner, it might be a little hard to see this, but I'll, I'll try to point some things out. Here on the left side, these are like kind of different world religions, right? Uh, this is the kind of color-coordinated map of like the geographic areas. And so when you look at most of these, you go down, it's like, okay, they're, they're very much located in, in one particular area, but there is one that is different than the others. There, there's one line up here that doesn't look like the others, and that's this right here. That's the Christian faith, that it is almost evenly dispersed across the world. No single region, no single continent can claim we are, we are the Christian nation. It's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's crazy. There's something about the message of Jesus that transcends cultures, it transcends times, it transcends places. There's something about the message of Jesus that communicates to the deepest part of human beings and who we are and what we long for. It's often sometimes mistakenly thought that, well, isn't, isn't Christianity like a... It's a European thing. It's an American thing. It's a white man's religion. But even today, the majority of Christians don't live in the global north. They live in the global south. That the continent with the most Christians living in it is actually Africa. Rebecca McLaughlin said this, that Christianity is the largest, most diverse belief system in the world with roughly equal numbers of Christians in Europe, North America, South America, and Africa with a rapid, this is crazy, with a rapidly growing church in China. The church in China is expected to outgrow the church in America by 2030. It could include half of China's population by 2060. By that point, 40% of the world's Christians could be living in sub-Saharan Africa. And then she concludes by saying, if the experts are right, I will likely live to see black Christians become the largest racial group within the global church. The whole world has gone after him. Right? What, what the Pharisees are worried about, they're like, the whole world has gone after this guy. It's happened. And it's true. And then John, who's, who's putting this account together, he, he strategically puts the, the next thing that we're going to look at next. Because just after the, the, the Pharisees have said the whole world has gone after him, John's like, let me give you an illustration. Now some Greeks, some Greeks. Uh, the Greeks, or also, they're also known in the New Testament as, just, as Gentiles, just anybody who's not Jewish. It's literally the entire world other than the Jewish people. And so here, here come the, you know, the, the Pharisees, like, the whole world has gone after this Jesus. And John's like, yeah, how about I tell you about these Greeks? 
They were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they had gone to Jerusalem. They had gone to Passover. These are uh, people who in the New Testament are known as uh, God-fearers. They're like interested in the God of the Hebrews, but they're not ethnically Jewish. So they can't ever really be like uh, officially a part of that, that faith tradition. So they're there. They're kind of on the outsides. They're curious. They came to Philip. Philip was one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. They, they, they come to Philip, and it's interesting that, that, that Philip is, is actually a Greek name. He has some Greek heritage, and so it would seem as though like these Greeks are like, we, we, they either know him or they're comfortable coming to him. There's something about Philip. They're like, we can approach him, and we, we know he's one of Jesus' followers, and we really, really just want to see Jesus, sir, we want to see. We have one desire. We are here. We are at this festival. But what we want more than anything else is we just want to see Jesus. We're Gentiles. We're Greeks. We're from a different uh, part in the world. We have a different belief system, but we want to see Jesus. We've tried other things, but we want to see Jesus. We've, we have the gods of our culture, but we want to see Jesus. We, like there's something about him that's different. And we've heard about him, and we want to know if this is legit. We want to see Jesus. Can you take us to him? And again, I said it's the only, it's worldwide. Like there's something about the message and the nature of who Jesus is that transcends cultures, it transcends times. It speaks to the desires of who we are as humans. And there are so many people who just want to see Jesus. And they may not say it like that because they may not know it like that. We say, I long for love and I long for justice and I long for forgiveness and I long for hope and I long for peace. And what people are saying is I want to see Jesus. And these people, man, they, they come to Philip, right? <laughs> Philip's so approachable. They're like, we want to see Jesus. We, we, we know you're one of his followers, so you know, we know you can make that happen. What, what makes me question is for us, if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, do people see us that way? Right, like do, do people see us and say, you know what, I need hope and I need love and I need grace and I need forgiveness and, and I need to know there's something more. And I think there might be something to this Jesus guy. You're a person I should go talk to. I want to see Jesus and I think you can help me in that. Because sadly, man, for, 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 so, for so long, it seems as though like the church, and I don't necessarily mean our church, I love our church, I think our church is great, but the church at large, at least in our country, seems to be oftentimes more of an impediment to people seeing Jesus than a help in that. And man, would we just be the kind of people who are like, you want to see Jesus? Great, come on, let's go. Let's go. We want to see Jesus. And Andrew and Philip are like, okay, cool, let, let's go talk to him. And so they go and, and talk to Jesus, and Jesus does a very Jesus-y thing where it seems like he's like, did you hear what we asked you? Because it doesn't seem like you're answering the question that we asked or the request that we had. So they go and they tell Jesus, and Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? What are we supposed to tell the Greeks? They want to see you. Yeah, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Throughout John's gospel, this has been another theme. There's a lot of themes in John's gospel that are merging together this week. There have been several times where Jesus has healed someone or done a miracle or something, and he's like, shh, 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 don't tell anyone. The hour's not yet come. He says several times, my, my time is not yet here. The hour has not yet come. It's not here, it's not here, it's not here. And now he's like, it's time. It's time. It's time for people to see me for who I really am. This is this idea of to be glorified. The son of man, which he's talking about himself, it's time for me to be glorified. The, the glory, it means like the, the weight, the weightiness of something. He's like, it's time for people to, to experience who I really am and see who I actually am. It's time for me to go public. So these Greeks, they want to come see me, they're about to, is what he's saying. They're going to see me for who I am. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. And he's like, and you want to know what that looks like? Here's what it looks like. And again, in typical Jesus fashion, he kind of tells a riddle. <laughs> like, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Like, are we ha- Jesus, are we having a different conversation? Like, what just happened? He said, no, it's time for me to be glorified, but I want to give you a picture of what my glorification looks like. It's going to involve a death. This picture that he gives, right, it's like a, a seed going into the ground and dying. That A seed doesn't, like, literally die. Like, life comes up out of it, but the seed in that form dies. It no longer exists. That once the plant starts growing, you can't go to that spot in the ground and dig and find the seed. The seed's gone. It's died in that way. But in its death, more life has come from it. He's like, I want you to know that this is what my glorification is going to look like. It's going to look like death, but life is going to come from it. Remember who's talking to him. It's his, a couple of his disciples. It's Philip and Andrew, and there may be some others around. And he's like, hey, this whole dying and going into the ground thing, just so you know, the one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So guys, it's time for me to be glorified, and that's going to look like me dying. And Philip and Andrew and every one of my disciples that's hearing me, in that moment, whoever will hear me for the next 2,000 years, your call is to come follow me in the same way. That I'm going to die so that others may live. And if you're my follower, you're going to do the same. There's Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, when, when Christ bids a man, he bids him to come and die. Like, that is the call of a follower of Jesus. It's like, okay, I'm here. I'm, Jesus, I'm following you. I'm here to die. I'm here to die to myself and, and, and sometimes my dreams and my desires and my wants and, and what's best for me. Like, in some places, thankfully, not for us usually, it means literally dying around the world for faith in Jesus. But in the same way that life came from this picture of Jesus given him dying and life springing up like a seed dying. The same is true from us. When we die in different ways, life springs up in us, the life that he gives. And it gives life to those around us. Say, I'm gonna die so that others may live and I want you to come follow me in that. Verse 27, now my, my soul is, is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's talking about this, his hour again. But this, that's why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's like, yeah, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? Cry out, like, save me, save me. from like, no, this is why I, I came so that I could die. This is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name. So now we've moved from, hey, the Son of Man, talking about himself, is going to be glorified, to the Father is going to be glorified. That, that, that there's this beautiful idea, again, that, that John weaves in his gospel about the identity of God, that he's, he's Trinity, he's three in one, one God, three persons. And so Jesus is like, when, when, the, when the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified. And when the Father is glorified, the Son is glorified. That the people are about to see who God really is and what he is all about. They're going to experience the glory of God. Glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I've glorified it. I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Another said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. And so like voice from heaven, he's like, chill guys. That's just, that was for your benefit. Just so you know me and God were like this. And look at what he says. Now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. I, I, I want, if we will, for our minds to go back to the beginning of the message. I know it was a long time ago now. The passage from Exodus 23, Exodus 23, 12 talking about the 15th of Nisan after the Passover lamb was slaughtered, God comes through and what, what happens on the 15th, that Egypt and its gods are judged 
And Israel is freed from its slavery. And now Jesus is saying, hey, now what's about to happen to me, the world and its God will be judged, will be cast out, and you will be freed from something. He's like, listen, the, 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 the world, this kingdom, this present darkness and its ruler, Satan, the prince of darkness, are going to be judged, are going to be defeated, are going to be dethroned. On the 15th of Nisan, it's Jesus saying, on the 15th of Nisan, 1,500 years ago, Egypt and its gods were judged, and Israel was freed from slavery. On the 15th of Nisan this year, which would be Good Friday, the world and its ruler will be judged, and all people will be freed from sin and evil and death. I'm coming to, to, to judge evil, to defeat evil once and for all, and to free every single person that wants to live in that freedom, free from sin, free from evil, free from death, and how will this happen? Jesus, how are you going to bring about this judgment and free people? As for me, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. There's two things that are really significant in there. Did you catch them? He says, listen, I'm going to draw all people to myself. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. Here's these Greeks. They want to know who he is. I'm going to draw all people to myself. And how will he do that exactly? When I'm lifted up. When I'm lifted up, literally, as what was about to play out in his life, as he's lifted up on a cross. Crucifixion, they, they would have the cross laying down. They would, they would drive the nails through the person's wrist and through their feet on the ground, and then they would literally hoist the cross up into position. And the victim would be lifted up for all to see. Naked, bleeding, dying. I'm going to be lifted up. And when that happens, I will draw everyone to myself. Everyone will see the love of God displayed on the cross. That phrase, I'm lifted up, can also be translated and can mean to be exalted. Exaltation. As a king is exalted and lifted up on a throne. In the past several verses, Jesus has mentioned multiple times, I'm going to be glorified. The Father is going to be glorified. Here's what it looks like for God's glory, for his presence. For You want to know who God really is and what he looks like and feel the weight of who he is. He says, this is what it looks like. It's when I'm lifted up. It's when I'm exalted. When people see that, they'll be drawn to me. The exaltation of the king of the universe is on a cross. The one New Testament scholar put it this way. He said, the cross is a throne. His crucifixion is his coronation. And he reigns from the tree. So this is the significant day that we come to in the life of the church and things that have happened throughout history. This thing we call Palm Sunday. This is what it's about. This is what the triumphal entry of Jesus is about. This is what the triumph is. It's a triumph that looks nothing like a triumph. In fact, in the eyes of the world, it looks like utter defeat. It looks like foolishness. What Jesus is saying is exactly that kind of foolishness and that defeat that will actually be the key to freeing people from sin and death. See, you know, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, it's about Jesus entering the city, but it's about him entering the city as the king who saves because he is the lamb who dies. He's the king who saves. They're shouting out, save us, save us, save us, save us. He's like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. But it's not because I'm showing up with the sword to defeat the Romans. It's here because I'm going to save you because I'm the lamb who lays down my life to free you from sin and death. We celebrate today the king riding on a donkey. Because he came to bring peace. The biblical idea of peace is this, this Hebrew idea of shalom. And it means wholeness. It means healing. It's like, I, I'm, I'm coming to bring you wholeness. I'm coming to bring healing to humanity. Peace between 
people and God, peace between people and other people, peace within yourself, of that inner turmoil that we feel. Say, like, that's what I'm here to do. That's what I'm moving towards. As the lambs enter the city, so do I. As the lambs go to be slaughtered, so do I. And in my death, I will be exalted and I will reign forever. This is what he, this is the offer of Jesus to people. This is, the, this is the beautiful offer and why the whole world has gone after him and why it is such a beautiful thing. Because he offers peace and he offers freedom from sin and death and it is for everyone. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world. Anybody. I, I'm drawing all people to myself. Every single person around the globe. It does not matter your story or your background or where you're from. Everyone is, excited, is invited to go after Jesus. To look upon him. There's, there's literally nothing stopping any person from going after Jesus other than a person saying, yes, I want to. And for those people that are still questioning, that are wondering about faith, they're trying to work these things out, maybe you're not a Christian yet, like the invitation is like, hey, would you want, do you want to come after me? Do you want to follow me? Do you want my victory over sin and death to be yours? Do you want to live? It's that first time saying yes to Jesus, but it's also important to know that it's a daily saying yes to Jesus for those of us that are Christians that we're invited to go after him every single day. The illustration that he gave, like, hey, if you're going to be my follower, it's like I'm, I'm the seed going into the ground that's going to die so others may live. Come follow me. To go after Jesus, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, is to die to ourselves every day. To die to ourselves every day so that we may experience the life that is really life. And maybe, just maybe, some others will experience it through us. And they'll see Jesus. So as we move forward into this week, this holy week, as we look to, to Good Friday and Jesus' death on the cross, and as we come back here next Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, may our eyes, may our heart, may our focus be on our King, our crucified King. May we follow in his ways. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are that you are the God of love, that you have displayed that, that you have demonstrated that because you stepped onto this planet 2,000 years ago. You walked among us. You lived among us. But God, you came to this hour, the hour of the cross, where we're just in awe of who you are, that, that you would lay down your glory, that you would come, that you would die for one like me. May that be just the, the, the focus of our hearts this week. May we be focused on your life, your death, your resurrection. Jesus, may we be people like those Greeks who just cry out, we just want to see Jesus. We just want to see you. We want to see you in our lives and in our families and in our world. We want to experience your transformative power. And God, may we be like Philip and Andrew, that others can see in us that, hey, they're followers of Jesus, and maybe they can show me him. God, make us into those kind of people. Transform us by your spirit. Amen.